Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. And may all who hear this message and receive it receive grace with it in order to serve you acceptably. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Rabdos tes basileas su. We're still on Hebrews 1, 8, and 9. And there's something I want to pick up, lest we lose it, regarding the scepter of the Son's kingdom. Hebrews 1, 8 translation, But to the Son, he, God, says, Your throne, God, is for the duration of the age. And the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of equity. You loved righteousness and rejected lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you instead of your companions. Now in this increment, we're going back to consider the scepter of the son's kingdom from Hebrews 1.8. The scepter in Hebrews 1.8 is rabdos. That's R-A-B-D-O-S. And it's found in Psalm 45, 6, and also in the Septuagint of 44, 7, where this is quoted from directly. It's also found in Psalm 2, 9, and that's very significant because the Florilegium, or the series of quotations from the Old Testament from the Septuagint by the PT, are meant to illustrate the incomparable dignity and transcendence of the Son over angels. And both Psalm 2 and Psalm 44 in the Septuagint contain this word, rabdos. This is by a technique that the rabbis used and that the New Testament writers also use. Paul used it, this PT uses it, John uses it, I believe, in Revelation. Gezera Shawa, that's G-E-Z-E-R-A in the Hebrew, and then S-H-A-W-A or S-H-A-V-A. Gezera Shawa, which picks out one word or one phrase in one verse that's repeated in another verse elsewhere. And by these connections, these verses are connected by the same word, and that's Gezera Shawa. By Gezer Shawa, Rabdos is found both in Psalm 2, from where the first quotation in the Florilegium comes, and also in Psalm 45, LXX 44, where this lengthy or longer than usual quotation comes in first chapter of Hebrews 1.8, that is 1.8. By Gezereshaw, this is shown to be another indicator of the connectedness of these two quotations. Rabdos also has the meaning not only of a scepter, a king's scepter, but also of a rod. The Septuagint of Psalm 2.9 says, You will shepherd them with a rod of iron, speaking of the nations. Rabdo. Sidera, a rod of iron, goes on to say, you will shatter them like a potter's jar. 
Now, where the, te- the Hebrew text says, you will break them, the Greek text says, you will shepherd them. The Greek text of Psalm 2.9 alludes both to shepherd and potter, therefore, because the potter's vessel or the clay pot is mentioned as well as the shepherd and his rabdos. Both of these metaphorical roles, shepherd and potter, are ascribed to Yahweh in significant ways. It made me think this morning of the potter's shed in Little Hocking, Ohio. Hi to you guys. Faithful group in Ohio. The Greek text of Psalm 2.9 then alludes both to the shepherd and the potter. Both of these metaphorical roles are ascribed to Yahweh, the God of Israel, in significant ways. Psalm 23 and Ezekiel 34 comes immediately to mind with regard to Yahweh as shepherd. The messianic interpretation or the Christological interpretation of Ezekiel 37, 23, and 24 reveals that Christ is to be Yahweh's one shepherd who is also king over God's people. So we have a shepherd king. And that's by messianic or Christological interpretation. We see Jesus, therefore, as shepherd king. In Psalm 80, we recently took a prayer from there, Psalm 80, which is the Septuagint 79.2. Yahweh is petitioned in prayer as he who is the shepherd of Israel. Listen, shepherd of Israel, says the psalmist. And he's also petitioned as, quote, he who sits enthroned above the cherubim. We have shepherd, which becomes a notable theme toward the very end of Hebrews in Hebrews 13.20, when it deals with the resurrection of the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus, from the dead. And, of course, king is already here, anointed with the crown of glory and honor and crowned and anointed as king, messianic king. And, of course, what the PT adds to this is, from Psalm 110.4, a priest for the duration of the age also. That's what is a major theme of Hebrews. So this is a vision of none other than the Lord Jesus, whom God brought up from the dead, who is explicitly called the great shepherd of the sheep in Hebrews 13.20, whose blood ratified the everlasting covenant. Now the references to God as potter is on display in Romans, Romans 9, 20 to 21, famously quoting Isaiah 64, 8, or the LXX 64, 7, and also Jeremiah 18, 6, where Yahweh has the role of potter. The Romans reference is in the context of an argument 
which climaxes with the salvation of all of Israel, Romans 11:26, and even beyond that, God showing mercy on all of humanity, all the nations and Israel, Jews and Gentiles, Romans 11:32. In both of the analogies or metaphors, shepherd and potter, it is the Lord who makes Israel. He makes Israel. As in Psalm 100 and verse 3, we are your people, the sheep of your pasture. It is you who have made us. And why should someone complain to the potter? Why have you made me like this? Of course, the potter not only makes, but remakes. He not only makes the creation, he remakes it in a new creation. And that's what's the whole message of the Bible. So in Psalm 100 and verse 3, we have the shepherd doing the making. In Romans 9, 20 to 21, which alludes to Isaiah 64, we have the potter making. And in Jeremiah 18, down at the potter's shed, we see the potter remaking the jar of clay. In both cases, it's the Lord who makes Israel or who remakes them. That becomes dramatic in Jeremiah 31, 3, and 4. And in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, which will be very pertinent to the study of the new covenant, the new and everlasting covenant, Hebrews 8 and elsewhere. Finally, speaking of the scepter, as a rod of iron with which the sun rules the nations as king of kings, Psalm 2.9, compared with Revelation 2.27. And what about specifically the clause, you will shatter them like a potter's jar, a very violent verse. George Caird, that's C-A-I-R-D, George Caird, in his commentary on Revelation, made the following remarkable interpretive observation of how the allusion to the scepter of the sun applied to John's apocalypse or the book of Revelation. Caird observes the following. Listen carefully, please. John sees this ancient hope transfigured in the light of the cross. Pagan resistance will indeed be smashed but God will use no other iron bar than the death of his son and the martyrdom of his saints. The iron bar is the death of his son. This is one memorable quotation, so memorable to me it's stayed in my mind for several years since the early days of Rev the Book, in fact, when we were studying around Revelation 2.27. It certainly has an application, Caird's quote, to Hebrews. For the scepter of the kingdom of the Son, representing his universal ruling authority, is not detached in any way from the cross. The scepter is not detached from the significance of the cross or the death of the son. The death of the son in Hebrews is famously 
presented in 2.9, where it has a universally saving effect. By the grace of God, he, Jesus, tasted death, experienced death, that is, the wages of sin, for everyone. Now, he who wears the crown of glory and honor, and we've made reference to this many times in our Corona series, he who wears the crown of glory and honor has first worn the crown of thorns. So I think we can abbreviate the quotation of cared and simply say for our purposes, quote, God will use no other iron bar than the death of his son. All things are transformed. And I'm saying this now. All things are transformed. All beings are transformed, including rational beings with volition. All things are transformed in the light of the cross. Judgment and our understanding of what judgment is, judgment itself has been transformed from the application of divine retribution to evildoers to the action of divine transformation by grace through the death of his son. Judgment becomes a divine act of remaking, of transformation. And in that transformation, there is subsumed a destruction of the evil. And so all things are transformed and will be in the light of the cross. Judgment itself has been transformed from the application of divine retribution to the action of divine transformation by grace through the death of God's Son. He, by the grace of God, tasted death for everyone. That is, all judgment is divine transformation by grace through Jesus Christ and him crucified, as Paul would put it. In fact, at this point, I am reminded of another notable statement. There are a handful of statements or sublime sections that I've read in the past that stick with me forever. They're imprinted forever, stamped on the substance of my mind, and they never go away. And I keep coming up at certain points of teaching, and this is another one. So at this point, I'm reminded of a second notable statement that's forever impressed upon my heart and mind, and this one is by Jürgen Moltmann in a short article that he wrote called The Logic of Hell. He said in that article, quote, and this is what really hammered me years ago, and it still reverberates in my soul, transforming grace, it's God's punishment for sinners. Now, if people like to put sayings on their walls or on their fridge or on various places in their home, that's a good one to put up and always remember. Transforming grace is God's punishment for sinners. In fact, it would be very profitable for you, I think, and I hope you think, if I place this statement, this very succinct statement, in the context of the last paragraph 
of this very brief but classic essay, The Logic of Hell, and it is found in a book called God Will Be All in All, edited by Richard Bauckham. If you're interested in getting the book, there are several essays in there by, I believe, several different authors. But here's the last paragraph of that classic essay. I'm quoting now, the true universality of God's grace is not grounded in secular humanism. It is on that humanism, rather, as the logic of free will shows, that the double end is based, heaven and hell, being and non-being. But the universality of God's grace is grounded on the theology of the cross. This is the way it was presented by all the Christian theologians who were criticized for preaching universal reconciliation. Most recently, Karl Barth. In his Confession of Hope, the Swabian revivalist preacher, now Swabia is an area of southwest Germany, it's a historical region. The Swabian revivalist preacher Christoph Blumhart put it this way, there can be no question of God's giving up anything or anyone in the whole world, either today or in all eternity. The end has to be, colon, behold, everything is God's, G-O-D apostrophe S, exclamation point. Jesus comes as the one who has borne the sins of the world. Jesus can judge but not condemn. My desire, said Bloomhart, is to have preached this as far as the deepest depths of hell, and I shall never be confounded. Moltmann concludes after that quotation of Bloomhart in this last paragraph, judgment is not God's last word. Judgment establishes in the world the divine righteousness on which the new creation is to be built. But God's last word is, behold, I make all things new. Behold, I make all things new. Revelation 21.5. From this, no one is accepted. E-X-C-E-P-T-E-D. Love is God's compassion with the lost. Transforming grace is God's punishment for sinners. There's the quote in its context. It is not the right to choose, and this is a, this is a revolutionary and radical statement about freedom. It is not the right to choose that defines the reality of human freedom. Let that sink in. It is the doing of the good. Imagine if people marched on that concept. We demand the doing of the good by us. That's a close quote. 
Now, this paragraph, the last paragraph in his little essay called The Logic of Hell in the book edited by Richard Bauckham, it's called, in fact, the, Revo- the God Will Be All in All, colon, The Eschatology of Jürgen Moltmann, Fortress Press, 2001, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 2001, on page 46 and 47. This paragraph is chock full of insights. And this is where I'm going to come in and kind of fan out what he said in this last paragraph with regard to and around the general theme of the scepter of the sun, which we can't detach from the death of the sun. Consider just a few insights that we derive from this. And this is just a few. You'll probably get a lot more if you look at this carefully, especially when it's in print. First, there is the ironic insight that secular humanism, which usually despises or merely dismisses Christianity, is more agreeable to the kind of symmetry that goes with the doctrine of free will leading to a heaven and hell and of being and non-being. That becomes the worldview, not of the Christian faith, but of secular humanism. That's their worldview, what the Germans would call Weltanschauung. Christian doctrine, I'm talking about the real truth, which proclaims Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery of God's will, that divine will being salvific, and the salvific summing up of all things in his son, Jesus Christ. According to the Christian doctrine, there is no heaven and hell symmetry. In other words, because there's a heaven, there has to be a hell. And because there's free will, there has to be something that leads either to a hell or a heaven on the basis of individual free will. That's not what Christian doctrine teaches. That's not the gospel. It is secular humanism and certain aberrant forms of so-called Christianity and not the Christian gospel that elevates or even equates human free will with the sovereign saving will of God or with it elevates it above human will, the Christian Doctrine does not elevate individuals' human will and choice above the sovereign will of God, which is a saving will and a universally saving will. Furthermore, it is humanism, what we call secular humanism, and aberrant, A-B-E-R-R-A-N-T, deviant forms of the so-called Christian message that elevate individualistic human free will over the universally applied free will obedience of Jesus Christ. The real issue of any human will in salvation is the human will of Jesus Christ, who said, look, in the volume of the book, it is written about me to do your will, O God. I have come to do your will the doing of the will of God by the free will of the man Christ Jesus is the only human will that I have to be concerned with about salvation. 
His human will resulted in obedience. It resulted in an act of obedience in the death of the cross by which all of the human race receives justification and life regardless of their free will, regardless of their decision. Now, we'll fan this out and show that there is a present application of eternal salvation, as it's called, to our present time and the possibility of an experience of the coming age by the Holy Spirit now and how that can be gained or lost in time. Now, so I'm not dealing with that right now. I'm telling you that the sovereign will of God, which is free, is a will that has to do with the universally saving act of Jesus Christ for all of mankind. And so the Christian message does not elevate human free will over the universally applied free will obedience of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 5.8, though he were son, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Hebrews 10.5 through 10, Philippians 2.8, Romans 5.19. That resulted in justification of life for all of humanity, Romans 5.18, 1 Corinthians 15.22, 1 Corinthians 1.30. God has made him, who? Christ, to be for us wisdom. Christ is the wisdom that is the very image of eternal light and of the eternal God, not Sophia herself, but Christ himself is the wisdom of God and the radiance of his splendor and the stamp of his substance. And the man Christ Jesus is the only mediator between God and all of humanity. And it is the free will obedience of one Jesus Christ which resulted in justification and life for all of humanity regardless of their free will getting into a territory now called justification by grace based on the redemption that is in Christ Jesus for all Romans 3:23 all sinned Romans 3:24 being justified by the grace of God through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus God has made him to be wisdom for us and that wisdom for us means he is our righteousness or our justification. It means that he is our sanctification, which means he is our holiness. And he is our redemption, apolutrosis, which means that he is the guarantee of our ultimate remaking and redemption. So you know what happens as a result of that? When you really know that, you know, what you, you know what's taken away from you? Something's taken away from you in 131. You know what that is? The right to boast, bragging rights, that no flesh should boast in God's presence. Now, if I could say it was my free will, my choice that saved me, then I have something to boast about. But I'm saved by grace and through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. I got nothing to boast about, but I got everything because I boast in the Lord. 
Second thing, second insight that, at least from the top of my head this recently, I took from this last paragraph of the logic of hell. The logic of hell is overcome by the logic of the cross, the logos of the cross in 1 Corinthians 1.18. That's just something I'm saying now. But the second insight, the logic of universal reconciliation for which preachers are criticized not only in the time of Karl Barth or Christoph Blumhardt, but in our own time with even more passion, criticized. But the logic of universal reconciliation being grounded as it is in the logic or the logos of the cross, 1 Corinthians 1.18, which of course is foolishness to those who are perishing, including so-called Christians who make the free will of man equated with or elevated above the sovereign saving will of God. The word of the cross is foolishness to you. But to those who are being saved, it's sublime logic. Paul the Apostle himself, who was the author of the phrase universal reconciliation. Where did that phrase come from? Universal reconciliation. Did it come from Karl Barth? Did it come from Jürgen Moltmann? Did it come from Andrew Jukes? Did it come from any of us that are preaching it today? No. Universal reconciliation is in the Greek text, apokatalaxai ta panta. The reconciliation of everything and every being without exception. Apokatalaxai ta panta is exactly universal reconciliation. Who coined that term? From whose mouth did it come? From whose pen? Paul the Apostle. Because I believe that he wrote Colossians. And it's found in Colossians 1.20. Paul the Apostle linked this universal reconciliation with the peace that God made through the blood of the cross of the son of his love. And that's combination of 113, subject throughout from 113 to 20, is the son of God's love. And so we have a tremendous affinity between the son being the son of God's love and the son in Hebrews, the one whom God anoints with a celebratory oil of gladness above his fellows or instead of his companions. This is in keeping with Paul's apostolic determination in 1 Corinthians 2.2 to communicate nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. To know nothing but him is to communicate nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. So I say if salvation is Jesus Christ and him crucified, and it is, then it must be such a great salvation, Hebrews 2.3, as to be not only for all, but to encompass all without exception. 
All are accepted, A-C-C-E-P-T-E-D. None are accepted, E-X-C-E-P-T-E-D. Hebrews 2.3 talks about such a great salvation. Not cool to neglect it. You know, I'll even say this. You're not really woke if you neglect it. Third thing then, judgment. Not as an act or an action of divine retribution. Not anymore but as an act of divine transformation by grace constitutes a fundamentally Christian insight. How about these words? Neither do I condemn you. John eight eleven. That was Jesus' word to a woman who was literally caught in the act of adultery. She was caught in the act because she was entrapped. Self-righteous religious people, self-righteous political people love to entrap. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus said to her. When he was confronted with her, they brought her to him after they caught her in the act, after setting her up course now Jesus doesn't condemn the woman you know why because he can't as Bloomhart said Jesus can judge but he can't condemn Jesus can judge but he can't condemn neither do I condemn you therefore He judged this woman by forgiving her. And then by transforming her. Her confrontation with him was transformative. And he said to her, go and sin no more. Now, some people will say that's a tall order. But this was not an impossible imposition placed on this woman by the Lord of glory. What it really was is an assurance to her that his grace toward her would be so transformative and is so transformative as to enable her to leave behind the vicious circle in which she was living, a vicious circle of immorality and then continuous self-condemnation and guilt. Now, though men, especially religious ones, condemned this woman, at least they tried to until Jesus said, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. These religious ones wanted to condemn this woman while many also had lusted for her. While they did, Jesus did not. He did not lust toward her, nor did he condemn her. 
he did not condemn her because he could not. And because he came into this world that is under the sway of the wicked one in 1 John 5, 19, for a judgment in John 9, 38 and 39, in which he himself would become sin. So that sinners could be transformed, so transformed as to be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Fourth insight. It is just not in God. It's just not in him. It's not in his mind. It's not in his heart. It's it, just like he said to the people of Israel through Jeremiah. It never entered my mind to burn people in a fire. Like the worshipers of Molech placing their children in the fire. Such a thing never entered. Uh, uh, You know what a burning hell for people never entered into God's mind? That's what entered into man's putrefying and depraved mind because he's ignorant of who God is and ignorant of the words of the Bible. The doctrine of Eternal hell, a burning hell, an endless burning hell, is an immoral doctrine. It is a heretical doctrine. It is a blasphemy against God who is, as to his essence and his essential act, love. And on top of all that, it's really stupid. Now, there's nobody in the audience today except Jim. I called him Dr. Grouchy today because he was making sure he was making sure that I was take, you know, doing all the medical things correctly. So. And he even noticed that I parked my car at a different angle today. So I just want to say that because Jim's been faithful in all these. This is, I think, the 18th time we've been here to do messages with no audience so you can't say oh he was talking about me because you aren't even here I'm not talking about anybody I'm not talking even about Jim Dr. Grouchy and so fourth it is not it's just not in God it's not in him to give up anything or anyone as the parables of the lost coin the lost sheep and the lost son so dramatically illustrate in Luke 15. Jesus even instructed his disciples to go and police a picnic area to pick up all the crumbs of bread. He instructed his disciples to go and police the picnic area, as we call it, where he had fed thousands of people with a few fish and a few loaves of bread so that he said nothing would be lost, so that nothing would be lost. What is translated as wasted so that nothing will be wasted in John 6, 12. In many translations, it says so that nothing will be wasted, but the Greek word that he uses is apolumi which is the same word used 
for the word to perish. So he's illustrating something by that act of picking up everything and policing the area of every even fragment of leftover bread to illustrate something so that nothing will be lost, so that nothing will waste away or perish. He's illustrating obviously a far greater thing that no one, no being should perish. John 6, 12. Compare John 3.16, for example, with John 6.12. Those who are believing in him are having the life of the coming age even now. And they're not perishing. They're not wasting away under the nature of sin, under the controlling power, enslaving power of sin or fear of death. Compare John 3.16, Apolumi with John 6:12 Apolumi that nothing will be lost God who wills all to be saved in 1 Timothy 2:4 and who vows to do all his will in Isaiah 46:10 does not stand for anyone to be lost or anything for that matter That is why the mystery of his will is to gather up all things diachronically, that is, over the course of all time, to gather up all things diachronically in his Son, Jesus Christ, and in his anointed shepherd king. Fifth insight from this little paragraph at the end of the logic of hell, that love is God's compassion with the lost, quote, close quote, that, quote, love is God's compassion with the lost, close quote, is illustrated by a major motif of Hebrews. That is, that Jesus became like his brothers in every way, or his siblings in every way, so that he could become a compassionate and faithful high priest, archpriest, in things pertaining to God to make expiation for the sins of the people, Hebrews 2.17. So when we see Jesus' heartfelt compassion for individuals whom he contacted and for crowds who were, quote, like sheep without a shepherd, Matthew 9.36, Mark 6.34, his compassion for them, which he felt, is only a prelude to the climactic expression of that compassion and love on Mount Calvary, where he petitioned the Father for the forgiveness of all, including, no, let's say, especially those who pierced him. Sixth insight from this last paragraph of the short but classic essay by Moltmann, The Logic of Hell, Sixth insight, that God's last word is, behold, I make all things new, in Revelation 21.5, is a biblical disclosure of such magnitude that no one is accepted, E-X-C-E-P-T-E-D. That's in keeping with Hebrews 9.11, which calls it a tabernacle that is not of this creation. 
The tabernacle not of this creation is the tabernacle in heaven. And it prefigures the remaking of all things. It is not of this creation, Hebrews 9, 11. 9, 10, and 11 speaks in turn of a ransom of all for the world to come in 9, 12. We're going to take a look, I hope, down the road at a targum of Deuteronomy 32, 39 and compare it to John 10, 28 and 29 where God says, I kill in this world, but I make alive in the next world. And just what kind of application that has to Hebrews, we'll see. The new creation is the making new by transformation of all things and of all beings without one exception. Now this universal transformation was foreshadowed in many ways. First, we could say it was foreshadowed by the Damascene conversion of Saul of Tarsus to Paul in whom Christ then lived from that conversion on. Christ lived in him and not Paul and yet Paul. Not Paul, but Christ and yet Paul. Perfect example of transformation in which the destruction of the evil man occurred and the remaking of the man. Galatians 2.20, Philippians 1.21. This universal transformation or universal reconciliation was first also adumbrated or foreshadowed in the release from demon possession of the madman of Gadara and of a host of others who were afflicted and possessed by demons. It was foreshadowed in the healing of the disabled man at the beautiful gate in Acts 3 by the forgiveness of the unnamed woman who had sinned much and who had come to love much, to love Jesus and to love God much. It foreshadows the apocatastasis. This universal transformation, in fact, is called the apocatastasis of all things, which God's voice announced through all the prophets from time immemorial. Univocally, they spoke of a universal restoration. Apocatastasis pantone in Acts 3.21. It is the anakephaliosis or the summing up of all things in Christ so that he comprises all things. And that's the fulfillment of the mystery of God's will. As Ephesians 1, 9 to 10 tells it. It is the palingenesia, literally the again genesis, the genesis again, or the re-genesis. The regeneration, which Jesus alluded to in Matthew 19, 28. He wasn't talking about an individual's regeneration, but a universal regeneration in which the 12 men of his selection would be enthroned, judging, not condemning, the 12 tribes of Israel. And that t- by that time, the 12 tribes of Israel will essentially constitute all of redeemed humanity. 
It is the reconciliation of all things, earthly and heavenly, visible and invisible over the course of all time. Put Ephesians 1, 9 to 10 and 11, together with Colossians 1, 15 to 20, especially verse 20. It happens in the fullness of times, which means when all times will be simultaneous and when all people will be contemporaneous through bodily resurrection. When all flesh together will experience Jesus as the salvation ordained by God's grace for all. Luke 3, 6, confer with Isaiah 40 and verse 5, Titus 2, 11, the grace of God has appeared, salvation for all humanity. It is the time of rectification or a setting right. When the justification of all the human race in Romans 5.18 compared with 1 Corinthians 1.30 will become dramatically evident. It is that which Hebrews called the deorthosis, another word we can add to our vocabulary of universal reconciliation. Deorthosis, when everything and every being will be straightened out in a new creation and corrected into the glorious form that God intended for all creation, a glory and a dignity for all beings, which now crowns Jesus, whom we see crowned with glory and honor, a glory and a dignity that we don't know in this life. Jesus has it, having by the grace of God tasted death or experienced death to the dregs for everyone in order to take away the sin that had only rendered all of humanity enslaved. He took away the sin that had rendered all of humanity enslaved and all of the universe entropic under the slavery of decay. Seventh insight, and there's only eight, so hang in there. All of this and more is in keeping with the scepter of the son's kingdom. Rabdos tes basileas su the scepter of your kingdom, God speaking to the Son. The kingdom is the kingdom of the Son of God's love in which transforming grace is dispensed to the destruction of the evil and the rescue and remaking of the real person. Once enslaved by sin and the devil. In Psalm 2.9, the scepter of the sun is a scepter of iron. In Psalm 44.7 LXX, it is a scepter of equity or equitable treatment, fairness, justice, impartiality, whatever you want to say. Taken together, we have an image of straightness and strength. The Greek word which I translated as equity in Hebrews 1.8 is euthutes, E-U-T-H-U-T-E-S, euthutes. This word connotes uncompromisable justice, the uncompromisable and inflexibly applied saving justice of God that he applies with absolute rigidity to all of the lost. Wouldn't mind being pounded with that rod, that scepter. Eighth, and finally, in this short paragraph, Moltmann also introduced, and this is radical, what is for our times a radically transformative 
definition of free will, and in fact, a radically new definition of freedom itself. It is not the right to choose, he says, that defines the reality of human freedom. It is the doing of the good. The ultimate reality of human freedom is the doing of the good that comes from the knowledge of the truth as it is in Jesus. For to know Jesus is to be free indeed. The doing of the good through the spirit of the Lord whose presence means liberty in 2 Corinthians 3.17. That's what freedom is. In a time when we hear a freedom of choice shouted from the housetops, I think it's time to shout about the freedom that is the doing of the good. That is the freedom that belongs to people who are being remade by God into agents of divine goodness and divine benevolence. God liberates the enslaved will of men and women so that they realize that they no longer need to be enslaved to selfishness, to depravity, to destructive addictions of all kinds, and that they are liberated from the very power of sin itself and of the fear of death in order to serve their maker, or we could even say serve our remaker with joy. Millions will march for the power of choice. How many will march for the power to do good? The answer is nobody. Because the power to do good only comes from God. You can't demand it from a government. It only comes from God and is so inalienable of a right as to be incapable of removal by any form of human or demonic tyranny. Go and sin no more. Is not Jesus saying you better not sin anymore? No, it's Jesus saying you're free from the power of sin. You don't need that habit, that disposition, that addiction, that guilt-producing practice. You don't need it. In the light of the cross, in the light of the crucified Son, whom God brought up from the dead and exalted to his right hand, not only is judgment transformed from retribution to transformation by grace, freedom too, freedom itself, is transformed from mere freedom of choice to the power to do good through the spirit of grace. Goodness is the fruit of the spirit. As the closing benediction of Hebrews says, and I will close with this benediction. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep with the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with all that is good to do his will working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. May this be so for us. Amen.